All right, good morning. This morning, we are continuing on in our series, The Life of Paul, Series 3. We are now on the third missionary journey in the life of Paul, and the title is Ephesus C, which means the last couple of weeks were Ephesus A and Ephesus B. This is now the third week where we've been talking about what happened when Paul was in the city of Ephesus. Um, I guess I will warn you, like, this is real. Like, we're really going to talk about Paul today. So if you're sitting there going like, oh, this is going to be a tough passage to make about mothers. Like, I'm not. Like, there's no moms in the passage. So we're just going to learn about Paul. Um, So we are talking about the time that Paul spent in Ephesus. And if you were here the last couple of weeks, you may remember this. If you weren't, I'll just um, kind of review a little bit. Paul shows up in Ephesus. It seems like the very first thing that happens is there's 12 guys there who believe in God, but don't seem to understand all there is to understand about God and Jesus. And so uh, Paul, it seems like he shares the gospel with them. They become, they get baptized. He goes to the synagogue. He preaches about Jesus in the synagogue for three months before they finally reject him. And then he goes to the lecture hall of Tyrannus. And he spends two years in the lecture hall of Tyrannus, conducting daily discussions, telling people about Jesus. God does extraordinary miracles through Paul's hands. It's an incredible time. Last week, we learned about actually more than one thing. Like um, there was the incident with the seven sons of Siva and the botched exorcism. Do you remember that? Um, And then there was the people who were practicing magic, and then they were becoming Christians, and so they were repenting of their previous spirituality and burning all their magic books. And so that's all the stuff we've covered so far um, in in this time that Paul's in Ephesus. And so today's um, passage is going to be Acts chapter 19, verses 21 through 41. If you have your Bible, you can turn there now. So the last two weeks, we covered the first 20 verses of Acts 19, and so today we're going to cover... Um, verses 21 through 41. Um, It's kind of a lengthy passage, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to just read a little bit, explain a little bit, read a little bit, explain a little bit till we get to the end, and then I'll have three um, application points for you. So let's go ahead and do this. Uh, Let me pray real quick. God, I thank you for this time. I pray that you would be our teacher, and you would make us into the people you want us to be, and that we would believe the things you want us to believe, and we'd do the things you want us to do. I pray you'd use this message in that way today. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, verse 21 of chapter 19, here it is. When these events were over, I guess I'll pause right there. So that's referring to the things I just told you, the seven sons of Siva and the exorcism and the, and the uh, magic books all being burned, like all the stuff that we learned this past couple of weeks. So after those things happened, then Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem. After I've been there, he said, I must see Rome as well. So he is declaring his travel plans. Verse 22, so after sending two of those who assisted him, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. So at this point, we can see he sends two of his assistants. We have their names written down. Timothy is the name of one of them. Erastus is the name of another one of them. He sends them on a mission to Macedonia, and he stays in Asia. Now, this is important to understand. We said it last week or the week before. I can't remember which one. Recently, we said that Asia does not mean like Japan, China, um, Asia here is a, it's talking about a province in the Roman Empire where it's located in what now in modern day we call it Turkey. Okay, so in that area of the world, um, that's the province of Asia. And Ephesus, I believe, was the most prominent city in Asia. So when it's saying he stayed in Asia, it's saying he stayed in Ephesus. Verse 23 During that time, there was a major disturbance about the way. What is the way? Anybody remember? Yep, the original name for Christianity. Before Christianity was called Christianity, it was called the way. Okay, so there was a major disturbance within Christianity. There was a major disturbance in as, as Paul was um, sharing the gospel, okay, about the way. What is it? Here it is, verse 24. For a person named Demetrius, pay attention to that name because he's the main character in this story. For a person named Demetrius, a silversmith 
who made silver shrines of Artemis, provided a great deal of business for the craftsmen. So Demetrius is a silversmith, meaning he makes things out of silver. Um, And in this case, we can see the thing he makes is silver shrines of Artemis. Now, Artemis, if you were here last week, you may remember she is the goddess of fertility. Do you remember that? She's the goddess that the Ephesians all kind of revolve around. Like she's a very big deal. Ephesus was considered like the guardian city of Artemis. She's, she's the goddess who there's like this, uh, there's a huge temple in Ephesus that was like for her. And so there were multiple uh, craftsmen who would make things. Demetrius was one who made one out of silver. I assume there's people that made stuff out of copper and people that made stuff out of terracotta and all sorts of stuff. But they would make idols they would make shrines, they would make things for the people to use to worship Artemis, okay? So Artemis, is, as best as I can tell, like religiously, very, very big deal in Ephesus. The religious life of Ephesus revolved around her um, and, and the, god, you know, the goddess worship and the temple and the shrines and all that. And also, I think a lot of the social relationships and the economy like, was very much affected by her. In fact, you can tell. There was a great deal of business that was to be made. Like, there was a lot of money that was to be made by people who sold these idols and sold these shrines for people to worship Artemis. So, verse 25, when he had assembled them, them being the other craftsmen who do this stuff, right, as well as the workers engaged in this type of business, the people making the idols and the shrines and the what-have-yous, um, when he assembled them together, he said, men... You know that our prosperity is derived from this business. He calls together a meeting of all these craftsmen, and he seems to be the leader of the the meeting, and he says, hey guys, I just want to remind you, this is how we make money. Like, do you like Artemis? Yes, we do. Why do we like Artemis? Because this is the way we feed our families. There are some of you that that's how you put food on the table, is you make little idols and you make shrines and you sell them, and that's how you feed your family. Those of us who are in this room that are rich, the reason we're rich is because of Artemis and because all the people in this town believe in her and buy our stuff. So he just reminds them, you know our prosperity is derived from this business. And then, now here's the reason he's calling the meeting together, verse 26, you both see and hear that not only in Ephesus... But in almost all of Asia, this man, Paul, has persuaded and misled a considerable number of people by saying the gods made by hands are not gods. So you see what he's concerned about, right? He's saying, guys, I just want you to point out, Paul showed up. He's he's spreading the way around town. It is not good for business. Have you noticed there are people who are believing in Jesus and they, they think they don't need little idols anymore. They don't want to buy our statues anymore, right? When he's going around and spreading this new teaching about Jesus, he is saying, he is convincing people that the gods made by hand are not gods. Now, it seems sensible to me and maybe most of you, well, of course, something made by hand is not a god. Like we would go, well, it's good that he's saying that. That's true. But, But Demetrius goes, that is not good. This is bad for business. And so let me keep reading. So he says, Paul's going around saying the gods made by hand are not gods. So Not only do we run a risk that our business may be discredited, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be despised and her magnificence come to the verge of ruin, the very one all of Asia and the world adore. When they heard this, they were filled with rage and began to cry out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And so this begins a kind of protest. As the story goes on, you can tell. It sounds like this this little set of words down here is what they chanted over and over and over again. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And this is all the result of this speech that Demetrius gives to the craftsmen, right? 
He's saying, hey, this is not going to go good for us if we don't, if we don't stop. Like we, it's, it's becoming like Artemis versus the way, Artemis versus Jesus, Artemis versus Paul, right? And, 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 and out, we're on Artemis' side because that's how we make all our money. And so the fact that it says that when they had heard this, they were filled with rage, I think that shows you like a little bit of what the, like the tone must have been as Demetrius gave the speech, like the, the way that he gave the speech, you can tell. He was purposely riling up all the craftsmen. I don't know if they noticed that their like, sales were going down and then he's drawing their attention to it, or maybe they did, but they didn't think they could do anything about it until he came up, but he's the one that riles them all up. And so this becomes, as these people start crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, stuff starts happening in the town. I guess other people that are in Ephesus hear like some big group of craftsmen, like they're having a meeting and all of a sudden they're all chanting something together. What are they saying? Do you hear that? That's weird. What's going on over there? And it looks like a crowd of people started to form. Why are they saying great is Artemis of the Ephesians? I mean, yeah, yeah, we believe that, right? We're Ephesians, but like, why are they saying that in the middle of the day? Let's go check it out. And it looks like a lot of people get involved. Because verse 29, it says, so the city was filled with confusion, right? All these people are screaming stuff. What's going on? And they rushed all together into the amphitheater. That's another thing that makes me think it was probably getting to, this was probably, this, this protest was probably growing and becoming a pretty big crowd. Because the, um, the amphitheater, and I've, I've seen like pictures of it, like the ruins of it. I believe they're still there to this day. The amphitheater looks like a, like a half of a circle, um, and it was able to see, like, it kind of looks like half of a stadium, really, if you, can, like, if you picture a circular sort of stadium, um, or even like those long stadiums, just cut off the end there, okay? Like a, like a half circle, um, and it was able to seat thousands of people. And so I'm thinking the reason they go to the amphitheater is this crowd of people that's growing, and they're angry, and great as Artemis of the Ephesians, they mu- it must be growing to the point that it's several hundred or several thousand people. So they go into the amphitheater, and it says, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, who are they, right? Just new characters just appear in the middle of the sentence. Who are Gaius and Aristarchus? Well, Luke, our trusty narrator, tells us. Who are Gaius and Aristarchus? They're Macedonians who were Paul's traveling companions, right? So the fact that they're Paul's traveling companions makes me think they've been here, like, in Ephesus this whole time, right? Because he's not, tra- like, I don't think it's traveling companions as he traveled around the city of Ephesus. This is, these are other missionaries, Gaius and Aristarchus, who were traveling with him even before he got to Ephesus, when he was going through like the different Galatian cities, they were probably with him traveling along. And then they show up in Ephesus and they've been there with him. And so they get dragged into this. So I'm guessing what happens is as you get this protest, it's getting like people are screaming, it's getting uh, irrational, and it looks like it's starting to get a little bit violent. The fact that it says dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, if you're taking people against their will and making them go into an amphitheater, now it's starting to get a little violent. And I guess the reason that they were picked is because they were on Paul's team, right? So these people are good. Paul's telling them that the gods made by hands are not gods, right? Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. I'm guessing they went looking for Paul and didn't find him, but they found two people that were on his team, and so they dragged them into the amphitheater. Now look at verse 30. So now Gaius and Aristarchus are there. They don't want to be there. People are screaming, and there's confusion, and everybody's angry. And then verse 30, though Paul wanted to go in before the people, the disciples would not let him. I think that verse right there tells you quite a bit about Paul's personality, doesn't it? There's this amphitheater filled with people who are enraged. They are enraged at Paul. There's probably hundreds, if not thousands of people in this amphitheater who are dragging people that they are angry with in front of them and doing who knows what. And Paul goes, I'd like to walk in there and talk with them. 
I'd, I'd, li I'd like to explain myself, right? In that way, like I'm just imagining if it were me, if, I, if there were a stadium full of people that were enraged at me, I can't imagine thinking, I think I'd like to go talk to them right now. But that's what Paul does. He wanted to go in and, ex and explain, oh, let me explain why the gods that are made by hands are not gods. I could explain this to them. And what happens? It says the disciples did not let him. What disciples? This is just the word for Christians here. His Christian friends would not let him. He was saying, I, th I think I could explain this really good. They're like, we sure you can, but you're not. You're not going in there. You can explain it to them some other time when they are not enraged and in a big mob, right? So they wouldn't let him do it. Next verse. Even some of the provincial officials of Asia who were his friends, so apparently Paul had some friends in high places, they sent word to him pleading with him not to take a chance by going into the amphitheater, right? They're going to kill you. You don't go in there. You wait till things calm down. Verse 32, meanwhile, some were shouting one thing and some another because the assembly was in confusion and most of them didn't know why they'd come together. <laughs> Which, doesn't it seem like, doesn't it seem like there are some modern day protests that are a little bit like this, that they're like, there's some people that started it and they're screaming stuff and then there's other people that were there, like, I don't know, they just got dragged there with their friend and like they're holding a sign. But if someone were to do interviews, they'd be like, why are you here? I don't, I don't know, she told me to come, right? And so it just, it looks, so some people are shouting one thing, some people are shouting another thing, some people are going, why are we here? Like, I just heard a bunch of noise and I walked in, you know, and so now they drag these people in front of us. I don't even know why I'm here. But it, it, but it sounds like, like more and more people in the town are getting swept up into the emotion of all this. Uh, verse 33. Then some of the crowd gave Alexander advice when the Jews pushed him to the front. Got another character that just got thrown in here. We'll have to figure out who he is. So motioning with his hands, Alexander wanted to make a defense to the people. They're Maybe they're upset at him and he's trying to explain. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, a united cry went up from all of them for about two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So Alexander Stone in here, we don't know a whole lot about him. The fact that he is called a Jew rather than being called one of the disciples makes me think that he was not someone that was on Paul's team. He was not one of the Christians in Ephesus, probably someone from the local synagogue. Um, and at that point, I'm thinking, okay, well, then probably what's going on here is the Jewish people are getting swept into this protest as far as like being the object, like the thing that they're protesting. Like one of the things that the way... And the Jewish people in the local synagogue would have had in common is like the gods made by hand are not gods, right? Both, both Christianity and Judaism would teach that, right? The people that were in the synagogue, the Jewish people would say, yeah, you don't worship statues. That's not, we're not even supposed to. Like even if you think there's a God that the statue represents, you're not supposed to worship that God by worshiping that statue. The Jewish people believe that and the Christians did. And so I'm wondering if as they're getting upset about, you know, the gods made by hands are not gods, maybe the Jewish people are getting wrapped into this and maybe Alexander is trying to say like, hey, hey, just get mad at the Christians, not us. We, we, we weren't messing with anything. I don't know, because he never got to talk. They shouted him down. And they shouted him down, look, for two hours. That's another thing. Sometimes I just feel like I hear about protests where people just have the same, like they just pick a phrase and they just say it over and over and over again, like that's gonna do something. So that for two hours they screamed, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. It takes a lot of rage to just scream that for two hours. Verse 35. However, when the city clerk had calmed the crowd down, he said, now let me pause here. How in the world did the city clerk <laughs> calm this riot down? Because the word clerk, at least in modern English, doesn't that sound like, that just sounds like the dude that works at the hotel desk in the lobby when you first show up, right? How is someone that's not important doing this? So anyway, I looked it up, and if you look at the Greek word that gets translated into our you know, thing, city clerk, it is a high-ranking position, not a low-ranking position. The city clerk was much closer to like the mayor 
than he was the guy at the desk at the hotel. Okay, so, so he, the city clerk, high-ranking official gets, and he says to them, men of Ephesus, what man is there who doesn't know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple guardian of the great Artemis and of the image that fell from heaven? Therefore, since these things are undeniable, you must keep calm. That makes me think they were not calm. And not do anything rash, which makes me think they were about to do something rash, right? Maybe they were about to kill Gaius and Aristarchus. I don't know. Verse 37, for you have brought these men here who are not temple robbers or blasphemers of our goddess. So if Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with him have a case against anyone, pause, the city clerk figured out who was the instigator of the riot. So if Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with him have a case against anyone, the courts are in session and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you want something else, it must be decided in a legal assembly. So he goes to this crowd of people. He says, you need to calm down. If, some, if there's an issue, if somebody has done something wrong to somebody else here, then sue them. If somebody has committed a crime, then accuse them of a crime and get this handled in a court of law. But the place you do not handle it is in this raging mob, raging riotous mob. This is not how we do it. Verse 40, in fact, we run a risk of being charged with rioting for what happened today. When he says charged with rioting, I guess he's saying from the perspective of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire is going to think Ephesians is the city of rioters. We run a risk of being charged with rioting for what happened today since there is no justification that we can give as a reason for this disorderly gathering. After saying this, he dismissed the assembly. So the city clerk breaks up the riot. Everybody goes home. And that's, the, that's our passage for today. That's our story for today. I want to give you three applications. There are three principles found in this text that relate not only to the original story, but to our lives as well. If you're taking notes, you can write these down. This is number one. The preaching of the gospel, if accepted, will change a culture. That is something that you can see in this story. Just as you read through it, as you read through what Paul did in Ephesus, you can see this is true. The preaching of the gospel, if accepted, will change a culture. I want you to notice that in Ephesus, Paul proclaimed the gospel. He told people about Jesus. And people came to be, be believers in Jesus. And when they became believers in Jesus, their behaviors changed. And the way they spent their money changed. When Christianity swept through the province of Asia, it affected the local economy. The idol manufacturers didn't sell as many idols as they used to. And so I'm saying this, you show me a community where the gospel has been preached, but the people's behaviors have not changed, and the people's spending patterns have not changed, and I will show you a group of people who do not actually believe the gospel. The preaching of the gospel, if accepted, will change a culture. I also want you to notice that what's happening in Ephesus, and in this passage even in particular, um, I want you to notice that Paul was not politicking. The reason that Demetrius gets angry at him is not because he's trying to like, lobby the government to do something and they're arguing over what the rules ought to be. Okay? Paul did not call up his senator and try to make manufacturing idols illegal. Right? That's not what this was. I think sometimes people, I think that's what we think religious squabbles are. Like you get the state involved and that's the kind of idea that, that Paul comes along and goes, hey, well, I believe that the gods made by hand are not gods. Like that's what I believe. And so I think you should outlaw idol making, right? I think the idol, like the silversmith stuff, we should, we should make that against the rules, right? And then Demetrius gets angry that he's doing that. That's not what happened. He wasn't trying to change. He didn't do any of that. 
he was sharing the gospel with people every single day, and the culture was changing voluntarily. Christianity wasn't getting forced on the people of Ephesus. They were believing Paul, they were trusting in Jesus, and the culture of Ephesus was changing voluntarily. I think that's important to remember, especially as we move on to point number two. Point number two, the gospel will offend some people because it will cost them something. The gospel will offend some people because it will cost them something. This is so important for us to understand nowadays. It was true back then too. The truth about Jesus and the truth about God's word can hurt a money-making industry, especially if that industry goes against what Jesus wants. It happened with the silversmiths in this story, and it can still happen today. Let me give you some examples. Abortion is a multi-million dollar industry, okay? Lots of people make lots of money because abortion is a thing in our country. Um, now, I want you to imagine this. If the gospel were to spread across this nation in such a way that like, most of the people in our nation were truly Christians, believed in Jesus, believed in the Bible, and went by it. I know there have been times in our history where a lot of people claim to be Christians, but I mean, I'm saying, imagine if the gospel spread across this nation to where, let's say, 80% of the nation like, really, truly believed in Jesus as Lord and Savior, believed in the Bible, and went by it. If that happened the demand for abortion would go down. It would. Like, if only for this one reason, if it was only for just this one part of the Bible, if eight out of 10 people in America believed that sex is for married people only, okay? Which I know, nobody believes that, but I'm just saying if. If eight out of 10 people believe sex is for married people only, then about 80% of pregnancies would happen in a marriage, like, if that's what most people believe, then what you'd see is about eight out of 10 pregnancies, would, would, it would, they would happen in the lifelong union between a man and a woman who've loved each other and they've committed their life together. If that happened, if eight out of 10 pregnancies were, were happening in that context, abortions would just, they would go way down. And this is the thing that's important to understand. And if they did, somebody or a group of somebodies would miss out on thousands and thousands of dollars Millions of dollars, okay? I'm not even trying to be political. I could pick another thing, okay? It's not, like that's, this is not like the one thing. Pornography works the same way. There are people out there that, that make money on pornography, producing it and distributing it. it. If eight out of 10 men in America, I guess eight will say eight out of 10 people. If eight out of 10 people in America believed what Jesus said, like ser took him seriously when he said, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, when a man looks at a woman with lust in his heart, he has already committed adultery. If eight out of 10 people believe that, the demand for pornography would go way down. And somebody, I don't know who, I don't know them, but somebody would lose out on thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. Um, here's another example, gender-affirming healthcare. I think that's a weird phrase. Um, I don't think it even describes what it is very well, but that's the phrase they use, and so I will just use it for this sermon. In our, and this has been a lot of talk about this lately. There's an industry in our, um, our nation that the people that are involved in it call it gender-affirming healthcare. And this is, like a, a portion of it would be surgeons who are, are willing to perform double mastectomies and penectomies to people. You know what I'm talking about? Yes. I'm trying to be discreet, all right? 
There are surgeons who are willing to cut off perfectly healthy body parts off of perfectly healthy people to make them appear as the other sex, okay? It seems to me that if the gospel spread, spread across this nation in such a way that eight out of 10 people really believed what's written on the first page of the Bible, that God made us in his image, male and female, he created them. It seems to me the demand for those things would go down. But what that means is somebody somewhere would be making a lot less money. Their income would be going down in the tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars. Maybe even so much so they'd have to pick some other form of medicine, right? And so I guess what I'm just trying to point out, when you look at this passage and you think about the principles and it applies to nowadays, there are people who are financially incentivized to not want Christianity to flourish. That's just true. This story is a perfect example of that with the silversmiths going, we don't like he's going around saying the gods made by hand are not gods. Now, one of the reasons I bring this up is because it seems like if, if you don't realize that there will be people who, will be, that who, who are going to be upset at any flourishing of Christianity, even if no one's politicking and changing rules, like if we're just preaching the gospel and telling what Jesus said, I guess, well, I'll just read it the way I wrote it. Some Christians act like every time a fellow Christian gets attacked, it's because he or she was not polite enough. Have you seen that? That, that somebody says something and then everyone acts like, oh, that person's bad. Why? Well, they're all offended at them. They must have said something wrong. They should have been more polite about it. But that's not always true. Now, I will admit, yes, some Christians are offensive. Sometimes Christians are offended. I will happily grant that. In fact, I'll tell you a secret. I've had Christians offend me, okay? I, I have been offended by Christians. In fact, I hang out with Christians so much, I think it's safe to say I have been offended by Christians far more than I have been offended by non-Christians. Far more. So I will just grant right now, I totally get that we misbehave. But what I'm pointing out today is it is not true that every time a Christian speaks truth from God's word and someone takes offense, that the Christian was wrong for doing so. Amen. Christians can be perfectly polite, but sometimes the actual truth of God's word offends someone. And therefore, we need to be careful about piling on. Because I've seen this happen. I've seen it happen on Twitter, and I think it happens in real life too. That some Christian will say something politely, like this is the, th this is the truth, and then someone who doesn't believe that will take offense. How dare you? That's wrong. You know, you're a bigot or whatever. They're upset about whatever it is. And then someone who calls themselves a Christian will join in on their side and go, yeah, why are you being offensive? Why don't you shut up and quit causing problems, right? Sure, they're attacking you. Sure, they're whatever, beating you or they're doxing you or whatever it is they're doing. But like, nobody would be upset at you if you'd have been nicer. Mm -mm. No, in this story, Demetrius does not complain about Paul's tone, okay? He complains that Paul said the gods made by hand are not gods. It was the content of what he said that upset them. But he was telling the truth. And so we live in a culture where people say, in fact, there's a guy that sits there in the second service that says, this, he said this to me, I feel like multiple times. He said, we live in a culture where people think that if someone took offense, that automatically means the person who was speaking was offensive. He said, that's not true. People took offense at things Jesus said. That's, that's why they killed him. You know, people, I think people go, oh, what would Jesus do? He would love everybody and not offend anybody. No, he literally came here and offended people and they killed him. <laughs> God's message will offend some people 
Sometimes because it costs them something. All right, number three, third point. Some ministry that looks solo isn't. Some ministry that looks solo isn't. In the first 20 verses of this chapter, okay, Acts chapter 19, in the first 20 verses, which those would be the verses that we've covered these, the last two Sundays before this one, it looks like, if all you have are those 20 verses, it looks like Paul is accomplishing significant ministry in Ephesus all by himself. And that's what it appears to be. I say all by himself. I mean, with God, of course. God was doing extraordinary miracles through him. But I mean, no other ministers or missionaries are really mentioned in those first 20 verses. But all of that changes with today's passage. Today's passage, we see some names of some other people, and it, and it looks like they were there the whole time. I don't know if you caught it, but I want to show it to you. These verses show us that Paul actually had a staff. He had a, a, a group of partners. He had helpers in what he was doing. He was not doing this alone. So look at verse 22. Verse 22 says, So after sending two of those who assisted him, now what are their names? Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia, he himself stayed in Asia. He stayed behind while he sent two guys on a mission. The way this is written, it sounds like Timothy and Erastus, it doesn't say like Timothy and Erastus showed up and then Paul said, okay, now to Macedonia with you. It looks like they'd been there the whole time. They just hadn't got mentioned yet. So how many people were there assisting Paul? We go, well, probably just two. No, no. We got Paul and Timothy and Erastus, but notice it says, after sending two of those who assisted him. Okay, it doesn't say after sending the only two who assisted him. It's just two out of however many there were who assisted him. Timothy and Erastus got sent to Macedonia. Were there other ones? Yes, there were other ones. They're mentioned in the passage. Look at verse 29. You may remember this. We just read it. Verse 29. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed all together into the amphitheater, dragging along who? Gaius and Aristarchus. Who are they? We already found out. They're Macedonians who were Paul's traveling companions. What? Traveling companions? So they were there the whole time too. They didn't just show up in Ephesus. They were with him as he was traveling to the cities that he got to before he got to Ephesus. So we had 20 verses where it looks like Paul's ministering all by himself, and then we find out, whoa, Timothy, Erastus, Gaius, and Aristarchus were there the whole time. Well, how, so, so what, how do we know? About, like, the, reason we know that these, the reason we know these four guys' names is because they did something in the story that got them named. I guess what I'm saying is I don't believe that it is certain or even probable that these four guys were the only guys that were there helping him. I think these four guys are just the four guys that got mentioned in this story because two of them got sent to Macedonia and two of them got dragged into the amphitheater against their will, okay? I think there were other people there who didn't get dragged, like faster people maybe, who, 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 who didn't get dragged into the amphitheater and so their name doesn't end up in the Bible. Guys and Aristarchus got in the Bible because they were slow. Okay, I don't know that that's why. Okay, my point my point here is Paul was not the lone minister in Ephesus. Multiple people were serving God and supporting the mission in Ephesus. Here's how this relates to us. Listen closely. I am not the minister of Good News Church. We are the ministers of Good News Church. Some ministers are more visible. Some ministers are more well-known. Some ministers are more supportive and more behind the scenes. But it is the people of God who have been given the work of God. I'm not the first one to say that, right? It's the people of God who have been given the work of God. Now, some of you may be thinking, oh, Mario, you always say stuff like this. <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> and I will keep saying it 
and I will keep saying it till nearly all of Marion County believes it and believes it so hard that when people say things to the contrary, everyone else in the room will look at them one day like they just said something really confusing or weird, okay? Like that's what we pay the minister for. I want everyone to look at that person like that. And that is how I will know my job is done here and I can die. <laughs> A happy man. Is that hyperbole? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but I do want that to happen. Okay, in summary, Demetrius started an almost violent or somewhat violent protest because Paul was spreading the gospel. From this we learn, the preaching of the gospel, if accepted, will change a culture. The gospel will offend some people because it will cost them something. And some ministry that looks solo isn't. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. I pray that you would use it to shape us, to be the people that we need to be. All sorts of people here today, some that come here every week, some that came here because a baby got dedicated. But I just ask that you would work in our hearts through your word and through your spirit. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.